Hello and welcome to another episode of Comedian's Paradise. Now this is the podcast where we speak to scintillating and amazing individuals who make comedians like you and me live life on our own terms. Now in this, if you like this podcast, share it with your friends, subscribe and give us a five-star review on Amazon or iTunes. Now today's fantastic guest has come all the way from Boston. His name is Casey McNeil. He's been in the business for 30 years, which is older than me. <laughs> and he, he's, he's gigged with whoever you can think of, he's gigged with them. And today, we're going to find out about his journey to comedy, what he knows about the circuit, like how it's changed, and of course, how the Boston scene is structured, how it's produced so many great comics. And... I th I, there's nothing more to say. He's an absolutely hilarious man, and I think you guys are going to absolutely love him. Let's say hello to Casey. Hey, how you doing, everybody? Glad to be here, Marvin. Thanks for having me. It's it's, it's great to be here on this lovely day in the UK, and I, I suppose lovely day in Boston, is it? <laughs> yeah, it is as well, although I'm sitting here in my studio penthouse in new york city or something i don't know where this is i love this background because <laughs> it makes me look like i'm hoity-toity or something you know cool. it makes me look like a toffer right <laughs> <laughs> it, it does it looks a bit it reminds me of the wolf of wall street where he goes in his like own little yacht right just <laughs> gets people so to i saw these... i saw seinfeld actually talking to david spade on the phone and he was sitting in a place that is actually this. Like, it looks just like this in the background, only it is his actual his actual studio place in New York. Yeah, that was I'm, a pretty good interview. And I'll tell you, I recommend all comics watch as much of that stuff as they can, you know? Watch the comics talk to other comics. Like, once in a while, you'll catch something. Like, if you follow somebody like David Spade, you'll catch it in, in uh, um, uh, Judy Tenuta and that. But David Spade, especially right now, You'll catch him talking to people on the phone. You just like call up Seinfeld and just have a half an hour conversation with him on Zoom, you know, like this, and then just put it up on his Instagram and stuff. And so, you know, you can watch it. And it's pretty cool because they talk a lot about what it, what it is and what it isn't, you know. And what do you think is, is going to be like in the future when we get like this generation's equivalent to David Spade and Seinfeld? How do you think that's the conversation is going to be different to that? The conversation is going to be really different, I think, because um, I don't know how woke it's getting over there in, in England, but it's getting pretty woke here. And like, you know, the middle-aged straight white guys, you know, and older like myself have really, you know, a difficult time being undeniable, which is what, uh, Sarah Silverman actually taught me in her way to be, I've been in the business for a long time and Sarah Silverman, you know, was talking about how straight white guys, you know, you just don't have, you don't have any angle or whatever anymore. And your old shit's just not going to work. You can't, you can't, like, I can't tell. I have, I have a few bits from the nineties that I can do. And the reason why is because at the time I deliberately wrote my jokes so that they were not topical and they were not anything that, you know, they were about the common human condition, something that could be told at any time, you know, um, instead of a joke about Madonna, you know, which has, a, it has an expiration date on that stuff. So I never wrote topical because it's, I didn't feel, I don't consider myself a very good writer, at least at the time I didn't. And um, so, uh, 
uh god what was, what was i talking about marvin right before i said that you were just talking about topical jokes oh yeah uh, and the, how things are changing what i was gonna say is like straight white guys you can't go in there and go you know oh you're a great looking crowd except for you <laughs> you know and is this your date and she looks good and blah blah you can't do that sort of stuff man i've seen comics today that are that are like old timers that have been around for a long time and still pull that stuff off and in the casino kind of comedy in that um but anything that's remotely considered you know punching down is not you know accepted at all uh which rightfully so and um you know when it comes to diversity i think it's kind of interesting that i know a lot of bookers who are young and they like to they like to write a lot of blogs about how they how they book how they book their diverse shows, but they never put anybody over forty five on them. You know, so I'm like, uh, yeah, ageism is still a thing, folks. Uh, in case you didn't notice. So I think though, the, what you were talking about in the future is that your generation is going to come into the, I don't know what, um, what, uh, uh. uh Chris Rock called, you know, boring, boring entertainment, maybe. I don't know. And I think that it's that, you know, there's a way to make to make jokes interesting that don't offend anybody. But um, it's getting harder. So you're basically saying we're going to be boring farts about nothing to say and no character. <laughs> no, I'm saying that what I'm saying is you're going to have to find different things to play off of. Then, you know, it used to be really easy and it still kind of is, you know, like um you know like people of color often have an angle where you know they open up with like hey white folk and that sort of thing and like you know that's like a that's like a 30 year old sort of thing to do if you're if you're a, a, a black comic and you go on stage to say hello white folk kind of thing and get a big laugh just when you first get on there and i just think this stuff like that is going to get sort of harder you know to do because while that's while that's funny you know that should that's actually pretty it's pretty hacky, but, <laughs> but it works, you know, so I don't blame them. Um, uh, and you can't, I don't know, bits have got to be different now. That's all. And I think you got to work a little bit harder to be interesting. And what Sarah, what I was talking about with Sarah Silverman said that when you're, you know, especially when you're a middle-aged, you know, guy with this, a straight white guy in that, and you want to, try and be relevant you have to make yourself undeniable and it's really advice for every comic that you have to be make yourself undeniable so like you know for example some of the young bookers in that might might not think i'm relevant while i well, i think i can be and am they might not think i'm relevant or appropriate for their show and they like the young the youthful juice and all that sort of thing they actually know and or find out that if you put me in front of your audience that paid $25 a seat, I'm going to do my time and they're going to laugh and they're going to thank me after and they're going to come up to me at the door and talk to me and, you know, I'm going to be just as good as any comic that you put on there and they're going to enjoy me just as much and feel like they got their money's worth out of that, you know. What, what you said there is a bit like uh, some of the problems in the UK scene. Because there's a comedian called Jeff Innocent. He's been going maybe 20 years. And he's really good, like, voted best live comic in the UK. And he can't get on TV because he's not, like, a product that they want to sell. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, for me, you know, I can enter a contest. Like, I can get, like, you know, I'm going to be doing a uh, an audition for America's Got Talent and stuff like that. 
but um, they audition a lot of people and a lot of people send auditions in and stuff, you know, and it's in, and they might choose me because they're, they're, you know, they do put some older folk on there and find it interesting and charming and whatever the case may be, you know, I'm not as old as some of the old, old people that they put on there. But I think that my jokes can be funny enough that they, they look at the jokes instead of me, you know, as a person, but typically speaking, I've known some comics, I've known some actual brilliant comics that TV that could never do TV. There was this guy in the nineties named Lane Fox. And this guy was such a brilliant, 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 brilliant comic. He had long, he had really long white hair and he was, and he was, he looked older and he looked like this homeless, you know, he looked like a homeless, but, but scary kind of a guy, right? like like some kind of a derelict dude that's walking down the street and he used to carry this big duffel bag and stuff over his shoulder and that and this is all his persona and he would get on stage you know and he would take an axe out of his out of his bag and he'd go oh how about a hand for all the other acts or for the axe and then he would put the axe down and then he would start his bit and his and his bit was all about like you know he'd say yeah um my girlfriend left me for a crack dealer social climbing bitch right like his whole his whole act is from this perspective of being like down down low and that and but his jokes were so dark like he had he'd say something like you know did you did you, he said did you ever take something apart and then you couldn't figure out how to put it back together well i had this puppy and like so so like because he had these jokes that were so fucking dark but so hysterical the comics actually thought he was absolutely brilliant, but no TV stuff. He could they couldn't put him on TV. You know, you just couldn't put his act on TV. I know a comic like that now named Alan Fitzgerald, who has some of the funniest stuff. But it's so. If you're not in a comedy club listening to a whole bunch of people laugh at it at the same time, you just put it on TV or something. It's very it'd be very controversial to people because they would be very offended by some of his stuff. Uh, so you guys should look him up though, Alan Fitzgerald. I'm not going to burn any of his jokes, but you can find him. You can find him online and that to see what kind of you know stuff he's stuff he does. So, but I mean, one of so two questions I like to go on from that is that uh, one of the good things about today's time is that social media, in some ways, if you master that, is your savior to do, to do that. And the other question I want to go in that slightly different way is tell us a bit about your journey into comedy and like how how you got to where you are today right well the social media stuff i'm certainly learning like everybody else is um i've been i've been as well i think i want to talk about this now because i smoke a lot of weed so i'll probably forget um <laughs> if i don't uh i i I have had like, I, in, when I'm in comedy festivals and that, some of them are really good. And you get these sessions where you can, you know, where agents will talk to you, managers will talk to you, and they'll give you advice about different kinds of things. And, you know, you can solicit them for representation, that sort of thing, which I, I haven't uh, in these recent meetings. But some of the stuff that, that I learned about was in the social media. And um, it's hard to figure out what kind of jokes to burn. When it says a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't put this on social media because I'm going to burn the joke. And then I see them doing a joke from the stage that they cut and put onto TikTok or whatever. I'm like, well, you're doing them or you're not doing them. Like, I don't get it. So mostly I make memes and I make 
uh, the TikTok video, sort of Instagram video kind of jokes with throwaway jokes, what I call them throwaway jokes. Like, yeah, they're, they're in my act. And if I'm doing an hour, you know, I'm probably going to do this joke, but it's not part of my tight five or something. You know what I'm saying? It's not like my TV act. Um, and so I try to stay in the medium in that. Um, and then they also say one thing that kind of scares me, but thrills me at the same time is they say, if something that you have on TikTok goes viral, that's who you are. They said, anything that you do that gets the most views, you got to continue to do that kind of thing. So like, if it's a certain kind of a joke or a certain kind of a bit, um, be prepared to do the same kind of thing. Like one of the guys that I know of this uh, Instagram sort of fame guys, they call him the young preacher or something. And he's got this really youthful face. He looks like he's like 16 years old, but he's actually like a 20 something year old comic. And he does these like charming little stories. And one of these things with like a million views, 3 million views or whatever. So I became the, the youth pastor. He said, that's all, that's all I can do now because they're, you know, they're not, they're not going to have it blue from me. You know what I'm saying? I gotta, I gotta do this thing now because that's uh -huh. the 3 million views I got. And so that's what he became. And now he works, you know, he'll work for, for a long time. But yeah, that's an interesting point because there's a guy called Nigel Un, who's a very good comedian in the UK, but he's you'll know him as Uncle Roger, and he that's a character he plays, some Asian guy that reviews rice, and the thing is he can't bring that into his, he he wants to do an hour show, but now he has to do it with that character and him. He can't just do him. Oh yeah, yeah right. Uh, I've seen some comics refuse, but I guess it's like you just got to be you got to be undeniable in what you do. And I suppose there's com and there's our comics that got on like Jackie Cashian. She she has really a, a, a lot of Instagram followers and she just tells her joke. She just started by cutting her stage stuff and putting it, you know, putting bits on that. I've only just started that. So, you know, we're going to see what the social media looks like. I certainly work it as much as I can. Um. I do a little bit too much. Here's a show and here's a show and here's a show and I'm in this show and next week try this show and I'm in three shows tonight and it's not fucking interesting to people. It shows that I'm working and it shows, you know, that I'm busy and it shows that I'm, you know, that, that I'm getting booked, but it doesn't really do anything for them. And I think that what you got to do is like, I think I do better when I make a meme that has a picture of me on stage and then I, I put a, a very short joke typed into the meme and then I put the advertisement for the show in the lower corner of that. And I start flushing that stuff out and around. And that gets a lot more attention, you know, because I'm giving something. I'm like, hey, here you go. Here's a, here's a joke just for you. By the way, you know, if you like that sort of thing, here's a show I'm going to be on. And it's just better than going, here's a show and here's a show and here's a show and here's a show and here's a show. I do that, but I don't think it's enough. And then they started putting me on to open for the, for the headliners. And then I became, then five minutes that I had turned into seven, turned into 10, turned into 15, turned into 30. And I essentially became what in the nineties, like we talk about feature acts and that sort of thing, but feature acts mean a lot of different things. Now in the nineties, if, if you were a feature, it meant you were a middle. And what a middle did was the, the comedy structure in really good comedy rooms that were like, Hey, we're a comedy club, you know, laugh factory or whatever. Um, the format used to be that you would have a guy who was the MC. He would come out, hey, everybody, la, 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 everybody, laugh at the jokes if you like them, blah, and all that stuff. And 
you had then an opening act who came out and did like seven minutes, maybe up to 12. And then you had a feature guy or gal who came out and did 30. And then you would have the headliner, which would be like, you know, the Margaret Cho type person where they would do 45. And that was your show. And that was how all shows went. And they usually ran three to five times a week. Some shows were longer than that. Um, so uh, I became a feature act and I was, and I was doing pretty good by 1992. I was, you know, I was traveling and I was touring. I was doing feature stuff. It's only a year in the business. It amazes me now that I had 30 minutes. I feel like it takes me two years to, to write. You know, I can write 30 minutes in, 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 I can write 30 minutes of comedy in two weeks, but you know, 28 minutes of it is going to be shit, you know, <laughs> and two minutes of it to be really good kind of thing. So so it's one thing to write. It's nothing to really, really write good jokes. So I was an entertainer. I was kind of hacky, you know, but not too bad. And when I say hacky, I just mean like, you know, my jokes have structure and they probably still do. Like, like I, I, I would write a joke very much kind of like Seinfeld would. I'm not Seinfeld-esque comic, but Seinfeld's style was to, you know, have a setup that's, that's short have a punchline that comes in like 20 seconds in the joke, maybe 15 seconds. And then he'll tag the punchline with something that's a little funnier than that. And then just when you thought it get, couldn't get any funnier, he'll put one more in, so he's got three. And then later on, he's gonna call back one of those three or the original punchline to that as a callback in the act. So my act was all like threes, hey, here's a joke. And he makes it funnier. And here's funnier now. And then later on, I go, you know, hey. And so I'd use the punchline from an earlier joke for that joke. So I do the callback bits. And it was just very structured. And so that's what I mean by hacky is like, whenever I do structured kind of comedy today or structured sounding comedy today, anything that if I get on stage and say, and sound professional right from the beginning, some places that I go are like, oh, this guy's, he's telling jokes. So where they, where the young people kind of get up and they just start talking to people and they just talk and they talk and they just talk and they don't really do, they don't really, they sneak up on them with the, with the jokes more. They're more conversational in their nature than just like, you know, oh, you know, this guy's telling jokes and here comes a joke, you know, imagine going back to it now, Barb Holiday who co-owns the Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank. They have a comedy festival, the Burbank Comedy Festival this summer. I think the submissions are still open, folks. And Barb Holiday said that she worked in, she worked like a creative artist agency or William Morris, one of these, one of those talent, big time talent agencies. And she was a young co comic doing, you know, night shows and that sort of thing and working her job there. And she would try to get these guys' attention to tell them jokes so that, you know, they would take notice of her and try to get them to come out and see her and that. And they would never do it. And she was like, how come you guys won't? She said, they said, well, you said, you really want, you really want to do this? You really want quit? She said, what? She said, quit. So they basically told her that the reason we're not interested in looking at you as a comic is because you do a day job 45 hours a week. And that's just not compatible with being a great comic and you know and, and what it turns into and you've probably seen it before and i'm not telling anybody to quit their fucking job because 
heaven knows that the reason why I went the direction I did was because I had family and needs to support. But I will say that if you find that you get up on stage for that five to seven minutes that you're getting on a, on a, on a 10 comic booking or in a, in a, in a, an open mic and you find yourself doing the same fucking seven minutes for the same 45 comics every time you get up there's something fucking wrong you need to start writing and you may not be writing because you like to do comedy you like to get up there and you like to do your shit and you like the attention you like to be in your in your stuff your seven minutes is good but you only got the seven and you just what are you using these mics for i don't know if you guys had that over there that phenomenon but i guys are just doing the same shit and year after year it's like come on do something different yeah we got loads of that i mean we, we also got a lot of, quite a few bringers and mm. we we got a f and then we got a few pro clubs but in london it's very um i think in the big cities in america as well they're quite exploitive of the comedians i mean really exploitive oh yeah yeah that's true. Tell me more about that. When you say exploitive, I want to hear more about that. So in, what's it called? In the UK, we do, there's a lot of bringers for the new comedians where they have to bring someone in to perform. And then, but you can get away with it if they know you or if they like you. Yeah. And then, and then there's, um, we don't do pay to play anymore. There used to be one, but that finished. But uh, how much? Most, how much did it cost? Four pound, five pounds. Okay. But okay. now a lot of gigs, they don't pay acts that much, especially down in the south. Up north, as you said, like north, before we started, the north and the, and the south are like different countries in a way. And that is true. In the north, they pay them a lot more than they do down south. Yeah. In London. Well, they pay a lot more like, I kind of, while these guys deny it when I'm over there, I kind of think about Boston as like, very much a, a sister city to to uh, san francisco when it comes to comedy but they pay a hell of a lot more out there for shows that are paid you know shows um yeah that's interesting to note um i one of the things that if you guys if you want to consider ways that you make money i mean we're talking about writing you really got to write oh let me tell you this first we'll talk ask me later about ways to make money <laughs> when you okay. can't make any money um but what i had to do because i i went out there and i said well i'm going to try some of this old shit that i used to do and see what happens when i first came back and some of it worked really well um and but I remember one night that, oh shit, this is an interesting kind of story. I, my, I started doing this a long time ago, right? And the jokes that I wrote back then sound a little different to people today than they did to audiences back then. And I even wrote a couple jokes that I submitted to Playboy magazine before that and got published in there. And I will tell them on stage, but because they have been seen and maybe passed along or whatever they sound like street jokes and one of them in particular i told this i did this bit about being an uber driver and which i dabbled in here like all comics do <laughs> here anyway 
uh, being an Uber driver and having to take a drunk person home. And it's actually a joke that I wrote 35 fucking years ago. Excuse my language. Or like 35 years ago. And um, yeah, it's old. So I tell this, so I tell this joke and I crush on this set. It's like an open mic, you know, but I crush in this set. And I get down off stage and I see sitting in the back of the, the back of the room, this woman I had never met before at the time. She's a great dear friend of mine now. I had never met her at the time. She's a comic. And she was with Rick Jenkins, who owns the Comedy Studio, which is a very well-known Boston club. And uh, he launched a lot of careers like Eugene Merman and Bob Goldthwaite and, you know, guys like that. So it's a well-known places. Um, and he was there and she came up to me, she said, that's not your joke. Because I closed with this thing. And she walked up and she said, that's not, that's not your joke. Um, and I said, whose joke is it? She said, well, that just sounds like a really old joke. I said, well, I'm a really old comic. You know, basically she, without, without calling it a street joke, she was basically calling me out for like telling some kind of street joke or whatever. <laughs> and I said, I wrote that joke. And I got actually, I got actually video of me in like, you know, clubs that doing it a hundred years ago. <laughs> it may have been a bit that got on Dorito stand-up stand-up. I'm not sure. Um, I don't think that's the one though. No, it's a long time ago. Um, so she called me out for being a hat essentially. And oh my God, how I bent over backwards to earn that woman's respect in my mind. It's so important to me. I don't know why. But anyway, I realized on that day that I had to dump a lot of a lot of old shit and I had it right. But I'm doing mics and I'm getting three to five minutes a, a night, you know, in a really super good club. And what's terrible about some of the best clubs, you get like three minutes on an open mic. So I got to reconstruct 45 minutes doing five minute sets. So I can't just go up there and do the same set all the time so what i did was i started writing my stuff to be five minute chunks so like i've got a tight five that is just about my mental problems and my add and my my ocd and then i've got five minutes on being broke and that whole five minutes has got its own like i can do it on stage with its own opening its own closing that wraps it up callbacks all that shit you know which some people don't like anyway, but but that five minutes on being broke is its own five minutes. It's a standalone five minutes. And then I got five minutes on on uh, history channel shows that I watch and about history being a lot like today and, blah, and I got bits on this. And then I got five minutes to stand alone that is on um, movies. I got five minutes to stand alone on relationships and being married three times. And so what I did was I basically took nine five-minute sets and performed those five-minute sets as they were. And then when I want to do 45, all I have to do is write down nine things. It's going to be, you know, Walmart, yeah. Michigan, History Channel. You know what I'm saying? Each one of those things represents like five minutes of stuff that I know what I'm doing about. And I can break it down in details in that on my set list and that, and I may... But I, I avoid taking set lists on stage now. Some comics still do it, but I try to avoid it. Sorry, my mic fell down. I hope that wasn't too loud. 
So I had to put the, the act back together that way. So those comics who like are out there thinking, you know, man, I need more time. I need more time. I need more time. Start writing five minute chunks that stand by themselves. And then you can stack them together and make a show out of that. Where was that? Okay. So Boston comedy back in the day, I started here in, a, in catch a rising star and catch a rising star was a club that was a true underground club it was you went underground it was red brick all over the wall it was old it was dank the bar was small um it was the 90s and so you know you didn't you couldn't smoke in there but there were places that you could we were right across the street from the original house of blues in boston and I can remember after the shows, walking over to the House of Blues, you'd go upstairs, there'd be bands playing. You could just smoke cigarettes and like crush them out on the floor and stuff. Like it was a completely different kind of era back then. But the structure of comedy then was you would have some guys like Jonathan Katz who would do, who would go to like Catch a Rising Star and he, and you would have your hour and a half show where he would do his 30 and, or his 45 and a middle would do 25 or 20 and you had an opening act or whatever. And his, his gig would go like maybe on a Friday or Friday and Saturday night. And then the shows that they would do during the week would be like, um, would be like uh, um, showcase shows where they would have, you know, eight comics doing seven to 10 minutes a piece, you know, maybe nine comics doing 10 minutes a piece, sometimes shorter bits than that, um, you know, seven, that kind of thing. And Mark Marin was a host of that. Chuck Sklar was a host of that, um, those shows. And so the structure was then, and there was a lot of great comics that blew through, like Adam Sandler and, um, you know, uh, uh, in the sort of Boston scene, there was a lot of comics back then that blew through those little shows. And there were a lot of interesting acts, a lot of character acts back then, like Science Boy was this guy that would get up on stage and all his experiments would go awry and stuff. And so he had some really elaborate kinds of acts back then. <laughs> I missed the, I missed the, I knew um, Barry Crimmins. Barry Crimmins was the guy who really launched, he launched the, uh, at the, above the Hong Kong cafe and launched a lot of comedy careers like Bob Katz and um, uh, Mike McDonald and uh, Steve Pearl, a lot of guys back then. And Barry Crimmins passed away from cancer a few years ago. It was very, very sad for all of us. But I missed that that era. I came on the heels of it where Boston was sort of was feeling the wave still from, you know, Boston is the, you know, comedy headquarters. Blah, blah. It was really a very cool place. A lot of Steve Wright came out of here. Um, who's a friend now. He drops in the clubs once in a while. He stands in the back of the room. He's got this big old burly. Do you know who Steve Wright is? Stephen Wright. Okay. He's got this big old burly beard and that and he just stands in the back of the room. Nobody knows who he is if you don't if you don't know him. And he'll, but he'll drop in on shows. He won't do any time, but he drops in on them all the time. Bill Burr drops in once in a while too. In Boston. Oh yeah, he's from here. Yeah. Yeah, he's from here. So um yeah, he drops in around here quite a bit. And he does, if you look him up online, look up like Bill Burr, Bill Burr Tours Boston or Bill Burr Tours. And you'll see him where he's doing a gig in like Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, which is just north of here. And he'll drive around in the car and, and either somebody's, somebody's filming him and he just talks to the camera and he tells stories and jokes about the neighborhoods in the area. And it is fucking hysterical. And he definitely should, should watch those. So yeah, Bill Burr drops in once in a while. <clears throat> but that, 
back then, like I said, was feeling the wave was cool. Now, Catch a Rising Star is gone. I came back here to live in 2004. Another story that was about a girl. And um, the comedy scene now in Boston consists of this. You have, um, well, I'll do prior, pan I'll do pre-pandemic and post-pandemic because there's a difference okay. now. Pre-pandemic, you had for a what was considered, you know, a rooms were a comedy club. You had com the comedy studio, which is Rick Jenkins. Laugh Boston, which is the place where you'll get the the mo the biggest headliners in Laugh Boston and Improv Boston. And Improv Boston did improv, but they also had the studio stage for stand-up. Okay. And uh, Improv Boston folded during the during the pandemic, and they lost their club. They say that they're going to get a new venue, but nobody's heard a word from them in a year. Or so, uh, which is really sad because it was quite a quite an establishment. You know, to it was like a big credit you put on your resume. Oh, I do Improv Boston. I do Improv Boston. You know, um, and now they're gone. Those guys. But the rest of the comedy around here consists of two kinds of shows, ticketed, ticketed nightclub shows. And a couple of them are, are really exclusive comedy. It's not like, oh, we're having a show and everybody's sitting at the bar drinking and they didn't know we were having a show and they're loud and they're whatever. You have that kind too. But you have a place here called the White Bull Tavern, which sells like, which does that 20 to $40 a seat night. And they will fill that entire nightclub with people. It looks just like a bar, but everybody's sitting there watching the act. And um, and it's a complete exclusive comedy show. There's nobody that's in the bar to do anything other than see the comedy. And downstairs, they have another bar and they have food and that sort of thing. But they sell tickets and they draw acts that have, you know, Don Colbert or, you know, James Corden or, the you know, late some late show TV stuff. They get guys like that. And then they'll have local people will feature an open for them. And then you have other theaters like the Roslindale that is sort of like what they call the Producers Club in New York, which is basically a theater for rent kind of a thing. And, the, and they do some really good comedy shows at the Roslindale. And it tends to be in South Boston in, in uh, Dorchester. And it's a different kind of a, it's a, it's a very urban feel down, down in those clubs. So you gotta, you gotta bring your shit down there. Um, there's a lot of that stuff around that, that sells tickets. And then there's a lot of it. That's just, um, you know, we have a book show on this night and I've got, you know, five good comics on here. And one of them is going to get 75 bucks for 20 minutes. Oof. Yeah. One of them is going to get 75 bucks for 20 minutes and everybody else is going to get a meal and two beers Oh, for their time. You know what I'm saying? And there's a lot of shows like that around here and you do them because sometimes they're in fucking, they're in sweet venues or they're with, you know, a booker that you want to get to know, you know, or whatever. But for me, I, I, this is not advice. This is me being vulnerable to you, you and your audience. When I returned to comedy, I was very unsure of myself. And one of the things was I wasn't certain if I would be able to get on stage without being on pills because I did it for so long. And so 
marijuana was the thing that that relieved the pain without the pills and did the work, but I wasn't sure if I could do that either. So I basically had to get as high as I could possibly get on marijuana, you know, smoke more than just what I needed medically. You know what I'm saying? Like to just get really high and get up on an open mic stage and try and do my sets because I'm like, fuck it. It's a, it's a mic. You know, it's my, I don't care if it, if I, if I bomb, everybody bombs in a mic sometime or not. And I eventually got very sure of myself being, being medicated on the stuff that I use. Um, and being able to perform. But in addition to that, I wasn't sure I wanted to, there, there's some guys here that like had great five minutes or seven minutes. They did something like the Boston Comedy Festival, which is a big comedy festival. Um, not like the Fringe Festival, but big. Okay. And well-known. And they'll do the Boston Comedy Festival. They get through the finals or even win the thing. And after they win, these agents or managers and that want to sign them and they find out they've only got fucking 10 minutes. That's the only thing they've got is that 10. And so it's kind of hard to sell you on tour or something when you've only got, you know, you got a brilliant 10 minutes, but you've only got 10. So I wanted to rewrite my whole act. And so I basically took four years before approaching any kind of agents or managers or representation or anything like that, or really good clubs, even for bookings. I just been skulking around in, in saloons and bars and, you know, medium sized venues and that in town and then doing festivals and getting noticed and, you know, sort of promoting myself and getting well known. Cause I've had some comics that have told me, I've, I know some comics in San Francisco, really, really good comics, headline comics, sent their, sent their shit out to every comedy club in the country and got like three replies. And the three replies they got all said, how many Instagram followers do you have? So it's getting to be where getting booked in a really good room that's like not in your own town is either something where you're going to have to make a door deal on a Wednesday night, you know what I'm saying? Where you're like, hey, I'll, I guarantee 200 bucks or whatever on this thing and the rest is mine. Or, you know what I'm saying? You got to do some kind of deal. <clears throat> um, or you got to have you got to have something going on. So credits are good and they help. So, you know, I tried, I started getting accepted in Boston. I got the Boston Comedy Festival and Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival and New York Underground Comedy Festival. And, you know, I got festival favorites and, you know, a lot of those things. And uh, I just been working my act. And now I'm back to the point where I'm ready more for that representation and started to go out to do more of the headline gigs by putting those nine, five minute sets together, you know. I mean, before, so one of the things that they say in the UK was in 10, 20 years ago, you could be an open micer and you could perform the same bill as someone right at the top of the circuit and go straight there and then progress to 10 and then be, being a paid act. And there was, is it the same thing in Boston? Like back then, you, I mean, you, you've gigged with, as you say, Mark Maron and all these other acts and did it work like that in Boston as well? Yeah, it did. Remind me to tell you the Margaret show and um, um, remind me to tell you my Margaret show story later because it may be useful to comics. The way it is now, the way it was back then was yes, you actually would have 
in those days, comedy places like, believe it or not, Comedy Central, which is a pretty big network, comedy stuff, been around a long time now. They actually started at one point or another, you know, they were just small. <clears throat> and the guy who pitched it and helped get it started, I actually heard him interviewed in and when I was on a festival in a private session. And he said that like, they were starving for material and for acts and for shows and for shit to content to put on. So that's how like the, you know, MST 3000 send in their stuff. You know who those guys are? They do the talkovers on, on, on bad movies. They, these guys sit in front, sit in the audience. You just see the silhouettes of their, of their heads and they play these really awful science fiction movies and they talk over them. T300, uh, it's pretty, pretty funny stuff. But he, he solicited this guy, just a small guy out of Minnesota, you know, the small, and they, they took him on and, you know, it became a big act. So back then, a couple things happened in the 90s. One thing that was cool, one thing that was not cool. One thing that was cool was that people from sitcoms, agents, managers, uh, talent agents would come to comedy clubs and fish comedy. They would source comedians and they would watch you and they would look for somebody that they wanted and especially in a big city like the in in, in la at the comedy store or something it was not uncommon to be on a show on a night where they would go hey some blah blah is in the audience you know and that was your time maybe you were on a wednesday night and blah blah was in the audience on thursday so you didn't get that shot but they would come out back then <clears throat> now it's they won't now they won't really come out for you they don't really want to come out and see you. Um, and that I've heard directly from managers and agents. Um, but they would come out back then. And yes, if they saw you and you did well, that was great. And you didn't do so much. There's not that many mics that would have really great talent would drop in on them. It was so, it was so unusual that you couldn't count on anything like that if you were on any kind of a show on a mic. But there was also mics like where I started, they did a mic on Thursday night. They had a three show weekend. It was Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And on Thursday night, the opening act would actually be like three or four open mic guys. And that's the shot that you got. And yes, you got to work with great comics who were the headliners because they would go on to do their headline act that night. But then Friday and Saturday would be the booked openers. Okay. Okay. And in some places, you can still get a shot. Like Leno still goes down to the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach on Sundays and hosts a mic and like variety show and shit there. So, you know, you can, you can work with the big guys, but you had to get booked on a show as an opener or get to do a guest spot. So when I would travel in the 90s, I actually bluffed my way into a lot of big clubs. When I went to D.C., the first time in like 1994 or something like that. I called him up. I said, yeah, I'm a pro and I'm in town and, you know, I just want to get a guest set tonight or whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, you, know, you talk the right talk and they will put you on and give you seven minutes if you sounded like you knew what you're fucking talking about. Right. Or you can name drop a, a, a manager from a club from another city. So I got a guest spot from in, in the improv in DC. And then I used that, that, that guest spot at the improv in DC and name dropping the manager of that club to get booked in a whole bunch of other places. Oh yeah. I worked the improv in DC, you know, so-and-so 
whatever her name was that I don't fucking remember. <clears throat> and I don't feel bad about myself. Not at all. Quentin Tarantino, you know how Quentin Tarantino got famous? He lied on his resume. He went to audition for a part and he, and he found that there was a movie that had an actor that looked something like him. So he said he was that guy and put it down on his resume and he got the part. And so his, yeah, Quentin, Quentin Tarantino's entire career is based on a lie. Um, but anyway, what was I talking about? I have to go back to the beginning. Hello, Marvin. Um, so yeah, back in the 90s, those were the cool things about shows and that's how you tried to get booked and that's how you try to get noticed. And there were only really A rooms and you went, you went to do a mic, you brought your fucking A game and you, you did, you, you, you performed like you never performed. And the way, the only way that you could tell new joke when you're doing a mic or when you're featuring in one of those big clubs is to put it somewhere in the middle. So like you open and close with your strong stuff. And then, you know, you want to try something out in the middle, that'll look okay, but you'll still come off looking like a pro if you open and close with strong stuff. So that was the only way you could write. You had to write just like one extra joke at a time was all you could do. Now, like I said, I can do mics and do five minutes at a time for, you know, good size audience. The bad thing about the 90s was that uh, sitcoms became pretty popular stuff. So you had Seinfeld and Seinfeld would actually contact writers that he knew like Joey Gutierrez was a stand-up comic, a headline stand-up comic, but he would write a lot of Seinfeld's cutaway stand-up bits that he did on that show. So you remember how the show was all about their friends, but then at every commercial break, it would be a cutaway to him on stage telling a stand-up joke. And a lot of that shit was written by other guys. And Joey Gutierrez was one of the guys that wrote his stuff. And stuff like uh, shows like Married with Children. I don't know if anybody remembers that show back from the 90s. Um, very popular sitcom on Fox. And those shows, those shows were written in two ways. They were either, they either had a staff of comics locked in a room right banging out a script for a show Simpsons and that sort of thing you know work like that uh which is where Conan came from he was a writer for Simpsons uh and the other way comedies like sitcoms like Mad About You and the stuff like uh, Everybody Loves Raymond would be sort of a, a modern more modern example they were written by people who are, are one or two writers they're at home, they bang out an entire script for the show, and then they just solicit the script. So a lot of shows did not have staff writers that would just solicit scripts from people. And the staff writer show, the staff writer shows more often than not, those guys, even though there'd be several people in the shows, they were they were starving for fucking bits. They were starving for shit to put in there. And when they ran dry, these guys would go to comedy clubs on open mic nights and on showcase nights, and they'd sit in the back of the room and they'd write down the fucking jokes that they liked, and then they would put it into a script for a sitcom 
And then these stand-up guys start seeing their fucking jokes being told in sitcom stories and thinking it's just some marvelous fucking coincidence. And then come to realize that these guys are in the clubs fucking lifting jokes. So they eventually had to tell them, they eventually had to bar certain guys and gals from coming in clubs. And so they got so desperate then that they sent, they hired college students to go in with tape recorders and tape sets. <laughs> what? Yeah. And so, fuck. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of times, like, when I tell comics about like getting taped or whatever, doing your stuff on tape, a lot of comics are like, oh, I don't want my tape out there. I don't want my tape. Out. I don't want my tape out there. If you have a manager or something like that, that tells you not to let your shit be out there, then don't do it. But otherwise, I don't think people should hesitate to tape their stuff because that's, that's the evidence of your work that you were the first guy to tell that fucking joke. Because that tape comes in, it's got a time date and a stamp date on it and that sort of thing. Upload the stuff on YouTube, make it unlisted so nobody can see it if you want. But that's your record of your, your shit that you do, you know? Hmm. Um, so if, yeah, if my friend had called me on that, that night on that joke, I would have, I would have showed, you know, I could have showed her a tape for me like 30 years ago doing the joke because we taped everything back then. Now I will tell you that your most brilliant stuff, you might want to keep unlisted. Um, because I have heard that TV, that when you do TV, they don't want all your best stuff to be already out there in the ether. They want to be the ones who do your stuff. So like if you had, for example, if you had a, a if you had a five minute bit, if you had a five minute bit that went viral, TV doesn't want you for that bit because it's already everybody's, it's already out there. So some of your best stuff that you use even for submissions and that sort of thing. I keep some of those tapes unlisted. There's actually two reasons why I keep them unlisted. And this is not advice. This is just what I do. I keep things that I submit to comedy festivals and TV and ages. So I keep it unlisted. So it's not out there for everybody to see, but also because it has far fewer views. And if I submit something to somebody, I can tell if they looked at it. Because, the, because I know that if I go into YouTube, it'll tell me this now has 48 views. It had 47 views before I sent that to them. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? So I know that the guy I just submitted to looked at my tape. That's meaningful to me. Because then I know they've seen my work. So if they don't respond to me and they haven't seen my work, I go, I don't know. But if they have seen my work, and they don't respond to me. I know it's just not a good fit for them. They're just not interested, you know. But it's just like a good personal sort of, it feels good inside to see that somebody looked at your submission shit, you know, be able hmm. to take that up. But they noticed you. You're not like a fly in the sand or something. They, yeah. they... So I, um, as far as comedy goes today, was the question about like how the booking and stuff goes now? No, how does so? Uh, the question was, how did comics back then have to go and progress and build oh, a career progress, and bo yeah. become professionals? And now, what do people need to do to become professional comedians in Boston? Okay, I say I'm going to say this right up front. I would say that based on my experience, and, and what I'm talking about here is experience. I don't want you guys to equate to equate experience with fame. Okay, because like, I I've got a lot of experience. 
it doesn't mean, I, but, but I've all mosted it for 30 years. I never, I never got that break yet. I never created that break for myself yet, but I've seen everything under the sun over the years. And I, I've seen things that work for people and, you know, and I've seen a lot of comics. And I say, one of the things is you got to decide up front is what you want to do. If you want to do this as a profession, full time and make money at it all the time, all the all the time with nothing else. Um, because a lot, a lot of your work is not going to be on stage. Most of your work is not going to be on stage at all. You're going to spend your time promoting. You're going to spend your time submitting to people. You're going to spend your time researching venues you can go to. You're going to spend your time trying to find agents. You're going to spend your time on social media generating content. You got to spend your time all, all the time, just yep. doing stuff, banging shit out there all the time, writing, 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 writing every day. <clears throat> and when you write, I recommend people look up Gary Goldman, G-U-L-M-A-N, look up his bit on, on first look up his bit on TV doing how they decided the alphabet for American states. Because the states are called Alabama, but you just say A-L. Like you don't think so how they determine these abbreviations. He has a five minute bit. This is the most hysterical fucking thing you have ever seen. And it's brilliant writing. And he gives a lot of tips on writing to comics in his, like his blogs and stuff. And one of the things that Gary Goldman says is you, you, you got to go through your, you got to have your stuff taped and then you got to translate that stuff like dictation and you got to translate it and write it all down word for word and then you break that stuff down word for word and you choose the words and the phrasing and all that stuff that you want you don't just go up on stage each week and say well i'm going to try it like this a little bit more this prepare write work that bit out write it down word by word knock that stuff out figure it out writing tip along the side i have stuff written out completely a lot of my 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 tight my tight 10 for example i've got every word in it and it has an illusion of spontaneity when i'm doing it but it's still a written script on a lot of levels because when you do like tv if you want to make it and you do like america america's got talent you want to know what they told me to submit to them any, you have any guesses how what they wanted me to submit to them money i don't know <laughs> They want to see my comedy. You know how much they want to see? 90 seconds. Oh, 90 seconds. 90 seconds is how much time you've got to make them laugh. And if you do the show, you're only going to get two minutes at the most. That shit has got to be tight. I mean, tighter than Toby's drum, man. You got to nail that stuff down to the Nat's ass. That's why I say you go through your stuff. <clears throat> strive. One of the things I've seen the comics do badly or whatever. Strive in your setups. You should, there's a science actually to the comedy, at least in comedy that I have done in the US and comedy and comedians that I've worked with in that. And the science of the mathematics is to count up how many laughs you actually get. People go, how can you quantify like laughs or whatever? Well, you can. And a lot of agents and managers will look at you and when they see your work, they're going to ask themselves, does he have five laughs a minute? 
five to seven laps a minute is what they want. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to get wait for a lap on the punch line. You might get a laugh along the way in your setup, which is very good. But some of the sort of tightness on rules is like, you got to get a lap in the first 30 seconds. Don't take longer than 30 seconds or you're done. Say something charming in the first 10 seconds, you're way better off. Okay. Um, like, you know, you, if you play off the last comics thing or, you know, they introduce you and you go, wow, that was a great introduction. I'm excited to hear what I'll say. You know, like whatever can get, oh, a little chuckle in the first seven to 10 seconds, whatever <coughs> um, <coughs> is good. Um, make a joke in the first 30 seconds. And if you're striving to, to, to say, okay, I'm not trying to quantify my laughs, Casey, so bleh. But if you really look at like that standard of five laughs a minute and say, how many are you getting? What you'll probably find, like me, it's one of my bits to say, if you're like me and I know who I am, you will find that you need to make your setups half as long and twice as interesting. I've seen a lot of guys, they do setups and the setups are way too long. They don't need to be, you don't need to set up a joke for two fucking minutes. Get to it, man. Get to the punchline where you can. So when you write stuff down, it's easier to look at words and chop them out and cut things down and do it, you know, right. So writing well is one thing I would tell you to do. In Boston, in order to get on a show, even a medium-sized show, like, a, you know, I'm going to do comedy night at the brewery, you know, that kind of a show. You got to go out and, and try to get guest sets and shows. Go out and appear on shows. Sit in the audience. Be there. Be present. Be seen. Be a supporter. Celebrate what's going on. If you're not playing something, publish somebody else's act on your web, on your site and go, hey, Check these guys out down at so-and-so street. I'm going to go there tonight and tag them in your posts. Hmm. Promote, celebrate, go in there. They go, first time maybe you go in, they go, hey, you want to set? Say, oh, I'm just here to just here to support, have a meal, support the club, support the show. Bookers respect that shit a lot. Comics, especially the book shows, because they because when a comic goes to a venue, it can't be much different in England. When a comic goes to a venue, you're like, I want to do comedy in here, and here's why you should have us. <laughs> and the only the only end sign of here's why you should have us that matters to a pub owner is the dollar signs. So it's like I'm going. People are going to eat meals. They're going to drink. You know, I'm going to have an open mic night. It's like karaoke. Twenty five comics will come in here and have a beer. And so when you show you're one of those guys coming in to have that beer, laugh at the jokes of the comics that are on stage, not be there like, that's not funny. I could have done that. Like, screw yourself. Get out. Get fucking over yourself. Celebrate success. Celebrate comedy. I have a very, I think it's a very important thing that I say frequently when I speak to my colleagues. I am because we are. Okay. I am because we are. My comedy means nothing without this entire community of comedians, these venues for me to perform in. 
these other comedians to support me when I'm down, bookers to book me, places to go. I exist because we exist. I have this profession because we all participate in it. So I go out and I participate, even if I'm not on the show. I support the comedy. I celebrate the acts. I tell people how, how, how much I enjoyed their sets by email afterward or by, you know, text messages and stuff, you know, messenger stuff. Um, go out and support shows, be on other people's shows, be seen, be present, be around. And that, that, that is, that's a piece of advice I actually got from a really great comic, local comic here named Zenobia Del Mar, who's a really, really good, good, funny comic. Very conversational to watch. You would like it. Um, sorry, my phone seems to be talking to me now. Quiet, Siri. You don't listen to my conversations, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> so, yeah, that fucking guy. Um, so that's a way to get booked on the shows that are in that level where, you know, hey, I might get paid, I might not, I might get 20 bucks, I might get, you know, my drinks. Just go out and be around. I would say, though, the same thing goes to some of the larger venues. Go in, like here, if I go to Laugh Boston and I say I'm a comic, I don't have to have a ticket. They'll let me in. I don't know if it's like that, but in England, but I would say pay the ticket price to get in to a show. Let the booker of that show, the manager of the night, whatever, let them see you there. Say hi to them. Let them know you're, the, oh, I'm just here to see so-and-so. I really like their work. Um, they go, hey, how you been doing? He said, I've been working, yeah, I'm working a little. I headline next week into so-and-so such and such. You know, you sort of drop little, little hints with them or whatever. You say, you know, I remain continually interested. How do I send submissions? You can ask why you're there, you know. Um, ask how they prefer submissions to come in. Because some comedy clubs, for example, like they want me to tell them directly what I want. Like if I say, you know, I want a Wednesday night, I'll do a door deal. I wanted this, I wanted that. I want a headline, I'm gonna bring so-and-so in with me. It's a great, whatever the thing is, you pitch it. Or you say, I really like this. You know, like when I do flappers comedy, I send them submissions to say, I, you know, I like that Writers of Conan show because I, I do a show on there called The Writers of Conan Presents. And it's produced by guys who write for Conan, right? And I like to do the show because it looks good on paper and all that stuff. So I would just send them directly say, I want that show. And then the next day I know I get a booking notice for it says, please do the show, you know? So, so she likes it when you tell her directly what you're doing. But if you just go, I'm here, I'm really good. What do you think? They go, I I don't know. What am I supposed to fucking think? I don't know. So don't just submit to people and go, here I am. Here's a video. And what I do, here's my social media links. No, you got it. Yes, I am available these dates. So you could tell them I'm available. You could even show them by showing these are the dates that I'm booked and show them where you're booked on a calendar so that they can see the available dates in the little squares. Even that is something that's direct. But don't ever submit to a club and just go, oh, here's my stuff. Here's my thing. Would you, can you use me somewhere? You may never even hear back from them. Hmm. Too busy. Yeah. 
what what did you notice with some of the com like one of the key questions you've said a lot there but one of the key things i'd like to ask is what makes boston such a big producer of some of the best comedians in the world and what did you notice when you're performing amongst some of these greats okay i think it probably adds up to a few things um one is the heritage that it just so happened that a guy named Barry Crimmins, hello, Jimmy, I'll tag you with this podcast. His sister's still alive, bless her heart. Barry Crimmins started doing comedy on the top of the Hong Kong Cafe, this little Chinese restaurant in Cambridge. And the comedian started to come down and, you know, it became, and so the comedian, there's a guy, um, I don't know if he should, I should use his name here. The guy named Barry. You can, if you guys do the things I said and you watch the videos, watch the documentaries, watch, you know, look for the names of the people, the agents of the producers that are interviewed in them that talk to them and talk to them. So we'll just call him Barry Katz. <laughs> Barry Katz was an, was an agent and he could, he could sell, he could, he could solicit comics to shows like New York, like the late night shows we're doing in New York. <laughs> as well as LA and that. And I'm no expert on how a lot of that sort of, um, I don't want to talk like I was there because I wasn't there during that time. And, but it did expand. It did expand like Stephen Wright came out of it. Bobcat Goldwaith came out of it in the mid eighties, like at a time when comedy was getting hot, you know, Bud Freeman put his evening at the improv on TV and all that stuff was brand new. Nobody's even heard of it anymore. And doing doing a, a comedy a show on TV that had just you know five stand up comedians on it was it was unheard of until the eighties, you know stand ups got you got on Mar you got on Merv Griffin or whatever and you did your four minutes and then you went and sat down on the couch and that's the only TV any comics got to do. The variety shows once in a while, but so, um, so the comedy was getting hot. Boston was releasing some really hot guys and gals new york also had up-and-comers you know um and there was a lot more excitement around comics on tv doing five minutes and ten minutes and, and trying to get on bud freeman was trying to get on the tonight show and comics were learning how to solicit and that sort of thing back then i caught a break early in 1992 <laughs> this is the weirdest thing Jay Leno was the host of the Tonight Show, and he had a national contest to source comics called the, the Tonight Show Comedy Challenge, the NBC Tonight Show Comedy Challenge. And it went, and the and the calls went out to cities around the country, and I had to audition for this thing on the freaking radio. I had to call in to a radio show and do two minutes on radio when my set is like really animated. I had to do two minutes on radio and they entered me in the contest. They ended up becoming a finalist. They got a clip on the show and all that stuff, which is very cool. But anyway, aside from the variety, that's a little braggy moment for me. My, my big, almost TV credit. Um, comedy was hot. Bobcat came out of here. Steve Wright came out of here. 
A lot of comics were getting time. Tony Viveros, Mike McDonald. Um, we're getting time on television. And so Boston, thanks, I think, largely to Barry Crimmins, got branded as like, oh my God, like Seattle for grunge music in the, in the 90s. You know, like Boston was like, oh my God, Boston and the comedy and all that. Because the shit that was coming out of here was really brilliant in this time. Um, and unusual and different. You know, Stephen Wright, very different kind of comic. Um, Bobcat, extremely different kind of comic. And so that avant-garde fringe stuff was getting hot. You know, Howie Mandel was like that back then. Hmm. A lot of people don't remember Howie Mandel back when he was blowing a surgical glove off of his face. That was like his whole act. Um, <laughs> he came down from Canada. He went on stage at the, at, the, at the comedy store, took a surgical glove and blew it up on his face and then let it blow off or whatever, got a big laugh and then we became really known for that. <clears throat> so fringe comedy is cool. Boston is cool. So let's, let's go back fast forward to now. Catch a rising star isn't here anymore. Comedy clubs a lot as comedy club clubs went by the wayside. Oh, and there's one that I failed to mention. God bless. I'm sorry, Mike Clark. Um, Giggles Comedy Club here in Boston is a great venue. It's it's familiar by about six or seven of the same comics, but Let, Lenny Lenny Clark performs there all the time. Uh, and Lenny Clark, some people might know from, you know, um, uh, Rescue Me, they did with... Uh, um, the TV show, HBO show, and that Lenny Clark does, works there a lot. Uh, Dave Russo works there a lot. J J Jason Merrill works there a lot, and uh, it's another drop-in spot for Bill Burr and that. And it's a club, but it's a for sort of a tight-knit group of comics that work there. Johnny Peasy, another one. Hi, Johnny. Um, that's a good club around here. Uh, but what was I talking about right before that? We were talking about comics and and. And, oh, the well, difference. So there's the heritage. There's the heritage of comedy. Uh, the Kowloon is a is a Chinese restaurant in Saugus, Mass, which is just outside of Boston. That also is known for great comedy, and they have a really big room. And um, uh, uh, they get guys like Bob Marley and stuff like that in there. Um, the comedian Bob Marley. Who some people know, he won the Guinness Book of World Records for doing the longest show ever. He did a show that was over forty-eight hours with nonstop. Ooh, yeah, they, they did something here in London, a bit like that. But yeah, yeah. he did. They put it on the radio on Sirius XM. He was on there for like you know for two days or something. Um. So there's the heritage. Then things start getting hot in the two thousand tens or whatever again for Boston comedy. One of the guys that brought this comedy scene in Boston, I don't say back to life, but really lit a big fire under it and really got us well noticed is um, the Boston Comedy Festival. Um, and the Boston Comedy Festival is pretty well-known place, pretty well-known festival now. And it, they offer like they have a you know they give a lifetime achievement award and a comedian of the year award so like Emo Phillips got um, lifetime achievement a couple years ago and Eugene Merman was comic of the year <clears throat> and 
they're they're kitschy and they're cool and it's a very it's a very great um experience and it's well known around the world because you have like the fringe festival over there you've got montreal winnipeg that just the just for laughs kind of stuff you have san francisco comedy competition which i think is pretty pretty hoity-toity still boston comedy festival and I might be missing a couple others, but you know, there's a lot of festivals out there, but they're not like really super good. So the Boston Comedy Festival rejuvenated things. Then comics started doing a lot more saloon comedy here. So the other the other thing I attribute Boston comedy being great is to the fact that it's very organic. Meaning that I, I'm not gonna lie to you. There are probably, if you went into a diner and sat on a stool next to the average Bostonian person, within five minutes, you would think they were a comic. Probably two, two out of every five people that you meet in Boston are funny as fuck. It's just, it's, I think it comes from a lot of pain and suffering. Because especially, especially comics that live in the urban area are comics that are that have come up in this blue collar kind of a thing meaning that you know the, there's a lot of these comics that like you know three of them four of them live together they each pay four hundred dollars a month for their bedroom they live in a shitty dive with you know <laughs> with rats in the basement in alston and they just go out and they do comedy you know and they gig other stuff and they pick up money where they can and they just, this is what they do. And they, and they drive Uber and they wait tables. And it's not like this. And, and those guys tend to move faster and gals, uh, by the way, on the progressive path, tend to move faster than the ones that are doing the full-time job 50 hours a week and then trying to do three sets of comedy in a week or four or whatever because it's just harder when you're not, when you don't have as much time to put into it. But um, those guys will be really funny. And there's also some, some good local kind of writing groups where you can bounce your shit off of people. And there's a lot of mics and the mics are, like if I go to a mic, an open mic, because this place is like, like almost like Los Angeles. Like you go to a mic at the comedy store, this shit will go till 2 a.m. There'll be a hundred comics on the list. Here in Boston though, it, it's possible to get 40, 45 people on a list for a mic. And if I went to, if I went to, you know, five, if I went to a mic with 40 people on it, I will probably know 35 of those 40 people. And the other five, I don't know because it's their first time or they came out from out of state or some kind of thing, you know, it seems like. And if I go to another mic later that night or to another club or venue, I'm going to know the 40 that are in there or the 25 or whatever they drew. Hmm. <clears throat> and so we become very much a community around the open micing thing. So the comics are very much encouraged by the host when they're smart to say, hey, you know, comics, don't forget that you know, you make up a large part of our audience tonight. And so 
you know, I'm not going to tell you to laugh at everything, but I'm going to tell you, if you think it's funny, you know, let us know and, you know, let the comics know what you think. And, and the comics have a really good time with each other where there's like, you know, 40 comics in the room and 25 bar patrons. And those 40 comics in the room will make it in such a way so that those 25 bar patrons are going to have no choice but to understand this is a comedy show and it's about comedy. So the, the community tends to be like, these guys here will deny it and they'll call me a liar, but I'm an old man and I'm sentimental. And I think the community here is very loving and very supportive. And every place and everybody can be a rival in disguise. And it's important for comics to remember that when they, you know, sometimes comics buddy up to you and they're really, they're not your buddy. And it's, it's okay to be friendly, but not familiar sometimes with, with people that, you know, they're friendly, they're nice all the time or whatever, but you're not entirely certain of their motives. You're probably right. Um, and, and, Cause there's actually some, there's actually been some really bad, I don't know if I should make this public or a world knowledge event, but there's been some bad stuff that happened here in Boston based on rivalry. Do you want to hear some dirt? Yes, yes, this this share. <laughs> hey, this is Boston dirt, man. This is big time Boston dirt. Recently, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking about this. But it was in the newspaper, so it's not a secret. Um, Boston comedy community, pretty pretty tightly knit. I said, I walk into a club, I'm gonna know forty of those guys in there. Okay, five of those guys are going to hate my guts for my, the rest of my life, because whatever I'm successful. They don't like it. They don't like that the audience laughs. They don't like me. They don't like my jokes. They think I'm whatever, you know, some people are just not going to like you no matter what you do. Yeah. And they are also rivals because they're competing for spots or whatever. So it became known to me recently that there was a small tight knit group of comics who are funny, by the way, they are very successful in this area. Like, you know, if you get any one of them on your show, you're going to pay. Okay. So they don't show up and do shit for nothing. So they're paid comics. They're in a very tight, little tight knit group and they like to play jokes and they like to play pranks on in situations. And one of them who I will not name here. You can look it up if you want. One of them seems to be a bit of the mastermind behind this group. Okay. And they have been accused of uh, burying comics that they don't like. And the way they bury them is they make up a fake email address with something similar to the comedian's name and they email a booker with a veils. Then the booker books them and the comic never shows up because the real comic never knew that they were getting booked because hmm. it was all a joke. So guess what happens to that real comic and his chances of getting that in that venue ever again? Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Like they, they think, hey, you booked a gig with me, then you didn't show up. 
And so it is, it is rumored that this group is responsible for those incidents or a member of the group. And I like all the guys in there and one of them I like very much. Um, but a scandal happened almost a year ago, just at the onset of the pandemic. A local comic here went on a TV show and uh, it's called like the, I can't remember the name and God, I'm sorry, I forgot you guys. Um, the late night mother party or some kind of dance, like an access show here in Boston. Very popular public access show. And they have like go-go dancers and stuff on the show. So he goes down, he does his bit on the show and he takes a little bit of an interest in the girl that was one of the girls on the show who was a burlesque dancer and as her profession. And he communicated a little bit with her some way, showed some interest in her. But then according to him, like that was it. A little while after that, he, this comic, I'm putting in the big air parens, set up a date with this girl, gave a fake address, and then when he showed up, then when she showed up for the date and found out she'd been burned and responded back in the text message to him, he called her all kinds of terrible, horrendous names And she was so upset that she went online and told everybody that what he did. Shit. And it was not this comic, according to this comic. And he basically said, you know, I'm not going to say anything now, except that my defense will come on these, you know, <laughs> on these comments, on this thing. So it's a big scandal. Everybody, ah, everybody's all upset. It calms down until about three or four weeks ago when a newspaper article comes out discussing the event and that group and naming them as potential culprits and setting him up. Hmm. I don't know if any of it's true. But that's the dirtiest dirt Boston's got. And all things considered, while dirty, it's not too bad. And when you go to shows, do your stuff when you can. Be funny. I tell people always, you know, if you want to do new stuff, but you're not confident, open with your good opener, close with your good closer, but do new stuff in between. Just don't go and do the same stuff all the fucking time. Um, be seen at these shows. Try to get guest spots where you can. Go out and do mics. A lot of the guys that do mics are booking shows. They're only booking mics because they get money for that on a down night. Hmm. You know, like I can't get anybody to show up for a Monday night show, so I'm going to host a mic here. I'm going to have the bar pay me, you know, 75 bucks because, you know, 40 guys are going to, 40 people are going to show up here and, and drink pints. 
It's not going to be a good show, though. It's not really a proper show. They will do it. Oh, and what's interesting, though, <clears throat> is because the shows are never sort of said like, you know, they're not sort of publicly advertised. It's not like in the newspaper, you know, there's a mic or whatever. Most of the, a lot of the, some people who show up for the show, they show up because they want to see a comic that they like, that they know about, or they're their friend, or they were at the bar already. And a lot of the times these comics say, we're going to descend on the bar as it is because I already know there's going to be an audience there. And I will turn them into our audience on that night. If they don't mm. know, it's comedy night, you know? So they just sort of roll the dice on that. But that audience will come, the audience will come and go throughout the night and they'll stay for five or six, 10 comics. And there are people that will stay from, seven o'clock until 10 and watch the whole fucking show not one word of a lie they'll sit through all the shittiest comics and the good they'll sit through everything Oof. what's what's bad is that like sometimes i thought it was bad anyway but i have old school manners emerson college here which is a great college um Dennis O'Leary graduated from there. He has a he has an honorary doctorate from there now. He's that he's Lenny Clark's friend, the guy who did that Rescue Me show. Anyway, another find that came out of Boston is Dennis Leary. And Emerson College has a comedy arts program where you can actually get a bachelor's degree in comedy. <laughs> so true, true story. So people that want to go on to be writers on comedy shows or write or whatever, they do this. They take this four-year class, and because their money, their people, their parents have a lot of money for a liberal arts college, <laughs> but they are often assigned to do stand-up, and so they come to the show, and they'll get on the list really early because they got nothing to do all day. So they get on the list like 4.30 in the afternoon. So they're like number 13, right? And they bring a, 10 people, okay? And there will be like three of these comedy art students and they'll sign themselves up as 13, 14, and 15. Each of them brought 10 friends, not because it's a bringer, just because they're college students and they brought 10 friends. Then the first one will get up and they'll do their set. Ha ha ha, all their friends left. Then that person gets off the stage, all their friends get up from their seats in the front three rows, walk to the back, talk to that comic while the next act comes up and then they leave. And then that comic's people go ha ha ha. And then that comic walks off and all their people get up and walk behind them and leave. So they basically, they sign up for the show. They bring three fourths of the audience and then they walk them in like eight minutes by taking it, by making them leave instead of being courteous and like staying for the whole show. If there's a mic with a hundred people on it, fuck that. But if there's a mic that's just like, you know, 20 people or a show with 10 people, don't leave unless you have to, or you have another show to do. Stay, don't talk in the back of the room about how funny you are and the bit you're working on. Listen, pay attention, get off the cell phone, celebrate the comedian that's on stage. There's room for all of us here. And one of the sort of questions I want to go on that because there are com there are certain comedians in the UK that have built their own following. They're not on TV, but they're very well known, and they they can make a full time living and not well deal with shit they don't need to put up with. And I hear from a comic in America that in Boston you have comedians who have their own large following who aren't on TV, not famous, yeah, 
but they can do their own thing, sell out and not deal with bullshit. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in, if they're in town, you know, when they're in town or when they're in this area. And, you know, I have enough of a following that, you know, if somebody sees that I'm headlining um, the, the headliners club, it's called, it's actually, it's actually at one of those chunkies places. It's like a theater that they serve food in, but they do stand-up shows on Friday and Saturday night. So somebody's, you know, if it's advertised that I'm headlining there or something, you know, I'll draw. <clears throat> um, I can draw four or five people to, to an advertised show, which is not like a huge following, but I'm saying I've got a big enough following to draw in five states, you know, five to 10 people for a show. So without advertising, without me actually asking people to come and stuff like that or putting, putting my shit out there. But yes, I will tell you the names of a few. Look them up. And this is my advice to comics. I have a couple of words of advice in our final minutes here, actually. Because you're not asking me and I'm giving it to you anyway. Um, look at comics that are doing things you're not doing. They're working in ways you, you wish you were working. They're getting gigs the way you don't. Follow them. Look at their Facebook pages. Listen to their stuff. Talk to them in the clubs if you can to ask them. They won't always give you a straight answer. And I'll tell you this. The best fucking gigs to get are the ones they won't, they'll be tight-lipped about. And you often have to find other ways to get into those venues because they think every, any space you take is a space they could have got. <clears throat> so sometimes they won't tell you. Um, but watch things. Look at like, for example, there's a movie called Grandma's Boy, which is a really funny stoners movie, right? And it's written by a couple of brilliant comics. Nick Swarston being one of them. And if you watch that movie with the commentary on, you will learn so much with the director's commentary. You will learn so much about stand up and about what they look for when they when they cast people, if that's the road that you want to go. And look at the people that are doing things you wish you were doing. So if you wish you were doing stuff like this, it is America, of course, but Dave Russo is a guy that has his own following. And he will sell out any show around this area at $40 a seat. Mike McDonald has his own following. He will sell out any show. Christine Hurley has her own following, has never done television. She did an audition for America's Got Talent, but didn't advance. And she's got a huge following. You put her anywhere, $40 to $70 a seat, she'll sell out. And she's my age. Um, so yeah, there are comics here that do that. There are also comics here that make a living at the $30,000 a year, $40,000 a year level because they book mics, they book shows, they, they book mics at bars, they book shows, they promote shows. One of the ways that comics make money here too and in New York and other places is they will advertise, they will create a comedy name Okay, like I have, for example, a TV show. So I've got it. I've already got an in. I have a public access show called the Cambridge Comedy Underground. And we are in our third season now, but we're on hiatus from the pandemic. But we're in our third season. And it's a stand up showcase. And our, my show airs here and in New York. So it's got a following. It's got a market in that. Um, but I use that name to go on to like Gigmaster and say, hey, Cambridge Comedy Underground will do your benefit show. So 
So I basically tell people, oh, you're the, you know, you're the, you know, farmers need help group of America, or you're the, you know, you're the association of dental, dental workers or whatever the you know, case may be, you want to do a benefit show so that people contribute money and it all goes to a charitable cause. We will do that show for you for $2,500. The rest is yours. There's a guy named Jimmy Tingle who makes it, he, he did some TV in the 90s. He's a very funny comic. He makes a huge living just doing that. Where people have fundraisers and they hire him as the comic for the fundraiser. Everybody else is donating their money and time except him. He's getting paid. Just like the food's getting paid for, other elements of the thing are getting paid for, comics are getting paid. Whew. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? The difference and discrepancy between like here and here, like yeah. In some so of let me tell you when I when I did a gig in California for doing, I was doing a keynote. <clears throat> they wanted one hour on customer service with my funny jokes and all that stuff and a few takeaways, right? They pay me seventy five. I said the guy called me up. He said what? He said what's your fee? I said uh, seventy five hundred dollars. He said oh thank God. Like it was low. When I got there, I realized that these guys had 500 employees in this place. They paid for their hotels and they had an open bar all night at this event and dinner. My $7,500 was like a fucking rounding error compared to how much money's getting spent on the event. So don't be afraid to price yourself right for the right kinds of events. What's cool about those events as well is the comedy bar is set like down here. You only have to be about this funny to be funny to an audience at a gala. But here's the thing. You can't do your headiest, most esoteric shit in those places. It's got to be pretty straight up, pretty, pretty easy to understand, pretty charming. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. You guys you can, can watch my tapes on YouTube. I have two different guys. I got my stage tapes and I got my my keynote tapes, and you'll see the difference. Mm. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, you've got to play every. You got to play whatever's put in front of you. And yeah, that's right. You got to play the room. You got to play the room right. There's some mics I go to. There's a place at Winter Circle that I go to in Salisbury. And I get up on stage and start doing jokes and like a total pro, I can't get a laugh out of them to save my life. I got to get up on stage and do crowd work and go, hey, you two look cozy. What are you, brother and sister? You know, like you got to make some jokes and mess around. You got to sound like you're just talking to them and telling them stories. So if it sounds like it's going to be a joke, they won't even laugh. So you got to play the room. Some rooms, I go to saloons, it's like 1130 at night. I got to do my bluest shit. Other times I go into room, I don't have to, but Sometimes I like that. I think it's going to work. Sometimes I do an improv Boston. It's a seven o'clock show. And I got three 15 year olds and a 12 year old in the room. Guess what? My act is going to be completely different now. Hmm. Yeah. There's not going to be any cussing. <laughs> it's going to be PG 13 all the way. PG maybe. Tell you what. Well, I've... I've got five minutes for that and seven minutes for that. 10 minutes for that too. Because when I first started writing, you had to write. I had I learned to write clean because my mentor said if you don't write clean you'll never do television. 
So I learned to write clean my first four years in the business. That's, I mean, I've seen comics who have done crude sex jokes in front of 10 year olds. And it's a bit like, come on, where's your common sense? You're not going to talk about sex in front of a five year old or like, come on, there must be some sort of limit to what you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. I would, I, I definitely, I tailor my act completely when I see that situation, you know? <clears throat> but here's the thing I know because I, I'm kind of a utility comic, which means like, make me the MC at the casino show, I'm great. Make me the closing act at Charlie's Chuckle Hut, I'm fine. Make me the guy that does 10 minutes of clean comedy at your clean comedy show on Saturday afternoon, I can do that. And the reason why is because I have written for all of those scenarios okay now one this will be there's two more questions i like to ask and like well three more one one of them will be um what's this myth how do the college circuit and the just do a short summary of and the the road comic circuit work um what is the greatest what is your what advice would you give to your younger self and what would you like to plug Okay, so the, the, the college tours here center around, at least this is the way it was, and I understand it's still the way this way today. The NCAA tours, have, they have an annual conference. And all of the people who are buyers of every kind of thing, entertainment, the shows they do at college auditoriums, the, the food they do, the, all kinds of stuff. They come to this convention and they buy stuff. And comics back in the day, and many of them would pay money to do, to do a showcase, to do five minutes or 10 minutes during a like 10 comic showcase. And then they just go and set up their booth with their calendar out. And these colleges would just walk around and go, we'll take these days and we'll take these days and do and they would book their whole year, one event, 150 grand. Now that was in the nineties. I know that you could still work a college circuit today. I don't know how well it is to get in without being represented. And I don't know what it's like to do those, to, to do those, to, that conference anymore, but that's a place that I would look. I would start by looking at NCAA, you know, conference stuff just do research that's how i find my gigs people think it's experience i gained this experience because i scratched and clawed and figured out how to get to the booker in a room you know what i mean hey info at comedyclub.com did not fucking work i gotta find another way like you gotta you gotta look this stuff up the advice i'd give my younger self is important and this is advice for everybody and this is the margaret cho story in 1991, I opened for Margaret Cho at a place called Johnny B's in Provo. She had just started doing her sitcom on television, which is about her being a Korean with her Korean family. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a, the sitcom, it's like a bit. It's a bit on my family, so funny, my mom, blah, blah, right? Her first, her first TV five minutes, her type five was like that as well. And it was about her Asian heritage, her Asian family. But her actual standup is really dark. It's kind of blue. It's very provocative. 
So she sells out this show in Provo, Utah. Now I told you guys the background of who the audience is in this room. Okay. They're all clean cut, young, sober people, highly religious. <laughs> I'm opening. I get up on stage. I do that much, seven minutes, maybe. They went nuts. They love me. I'm a regular in there. I was fucking great. I, I was, they love me. They liked me a lot. Then Margaret Cho got up there, started her act the way she actually does her act. And she walked half the room in the first 12 minutes she was on stage. Oof. The front, 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 they just got up and walked out. And she felt bad or whatever. And she had to tailor her stuff for the rest of the weekend, but only pretty much on the cussing and stuff like that. And she got through the whole weekend. But I learned something about that incident later on in my life from advice from Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac, God rest his soul, famous black comic here in America. And he told me a story about being a young comic at the Apollo Club in Harlem. And he said, one night Red Fox was in the audience. Red Fox is a big comedy icon from like yesteryear in the old days. So, so it was a big deal to have Red Fox. It'd be like Johnny Carson being in your audience or something, right? So he said, Red Fox is in the audience and he came backstage after the show. And me being a young comic, I wanted to know what he thought. So I said, Red, what did you think of my act? And Red Fox said to him, you're pretty good, kid. He said, the problem with you is that you don't want to be good. You want to be liked. Yeah. So if you reflect back on the Margaret Cho story, I was liked that night. Okay. But Margaret Cho has gone on to do TV specials and be a world famous comic because she stuck to being good. This is what I'm saying about comics that want to get up on stage and do that same fucking seven minutes all the time because you want to be liked. Get off of it. Write. Be good. Make yourself a Sarah Silverman said undeniable. That's the Tell advice me. I would give to my younger self. Stop trying to pander to the audience to get the laugh. I will do any fucking thing to get a laugh. I will. And so, you know, I, I'm not afraid to... to you know, do silly kind of stuff, hacky stuff, or what I would just, if I think, if I think, oh, this room is hostile, I'm going to do my tight five, or I'm going to do this blue set, they're going to love the dick jokes, or what, you know, I get up there and do that, and then I, I don't like, it's like, a, it's like a bad hangover afterwards, I don't like myself in the morning, that I just did that shit that I knew would work, so while I'm telling you, read the audience, I'm also telling you, when it comes to mics and stuff like that, man, grow, get better, do more, be good, don't try to just be liked. Write some stuff. Take a chance. That's it. What I want to plug, caseyscomedy.com, at Casey's Comedy, um, Cambridge Comedy Underground, which has a lot of great comedy sets, really high quality production there, I think. And on Friday, this Friday, that's this Friday, American time, I will be on Richard Chasler's Comedy Bible Friday Night Spectacular. Nice chummy name, huh? On Rampantly Comedies, rampantly.la. 
and I will be with Kathy Ladman, very famous comic, Kathy Ladman, Steve Pearl, another one that came up with them, Camilla Cleese, who's John Cleese's daughter, will be on the show. Yeah. And uh, uh, a couple other, Helene Witt and a couple other great comics. So that's a big plug for me because I've been looking forward to working with Kathy Ladman for 20 years. So I'm excited yeah. about that. That's it for me. Well, everyone, listen up. Yeah. You follow Casey and you're going to have a lot great fun watching it. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure.